All right, open your copy of God's Word to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter, actually chapter 1, verse 17, but that's the verse right before chapter 2. We'll read that, and we're going to read through the end of chapter 2. Uh, We're continuing our series through Jonah, and we are looking at how uh, we are Jonah, how we we in many ways uh, reflect what's going on in Jonah's life. And the way that we reject God, that we reject his ways, that we reject his calling in our life. And in the same way, we're thankful because in the midst of this book of sinfulness, disobedience, rejection, rebellion, there's this beautiful picture of grace and this beautiful redemption through Christ that we know now as we understand through through the revelation of his son. But now we know as we read And what Jonah proclaimed here in chapter 2, which may be the summary of the entire Bible, salvation belongs to the Lord. So let's begin in verse 17 of chapter 1. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. But I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will once more look towards your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank into the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy mountain. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to to the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray, as we have read your word, that we would see the truths in it, the very truth you have given without mixture of error, but instead it is also a message for us right now. In this room, Lord, and watching at home and watching and worshiping downstairs, there are people, many of us, that need to hear a word from you. And so we come expectantly to your word, wanting to hear from you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. My little three-year-old, Isabella Grace, one of the sweetest things about her is that for she's going through a spell, which I know that won't last very long, says sorry for almost everything. Her little conscience, her little life is just sorry, Daddy. Sorry, Mommy. Sorry. Da-. I mean, even for things that she didn't even do. One, one day Sarah was cleaning a dish and dropped it, and, and uh, Mom said, oh, Sarah said, oh, oh, I dropped the plate. She goes, I'm so sorry, Mommy. Like, she said something to do with it. She had nothing to do with it. But then one day, it just kind of overwhelmed us. Kind of, we were really shocked. She just went through this major temper tantrum. She doesn't have many, 
But she went, she went through a major temper tantrum. She was just so mad. I don't even remember what it was, but she cried and she cried and she was mad. It was probably only a few minutes. But then all of a sudden, uh, we just kind of let her be, let her do her little temper tantrum. But all of a sudden, out of the blue, she goes, ah, I'm done. I'm sorry, Mommy and Daddy. <laughs> I mean, it was just like it, it just hit, the conviction hit her just like that. Well, we have to admit, it took a whole lot more of, to bring Jonah to repentance, the, to Jonah's heart, than poor little Isabella. God had to send a, a storm in which a, a very, uh, very seasoned sailors were surprised and shocked at. He sent a, a fish to swallow him. And to show him of his disobedience. And this prayer that we have read, it says, comes from the belly of the fish. It's a, it's a prayer of repentance, but also a declaration of thanksgiving for God's sovereign work in saving him. And as we read this prayer, we must acknowledge the sovereign hand of God and the power of God in salvation. We must acknowledge that God is sovereign over all things, especially over salvation. And just as Jonah had to bow to God's sovereign call of ministry on his life, we too must bow to God's saving purpose in our life, in our circumstances. Maybe God might call upon you or move in your life, asking you or moving you to repent or of some open sin. In other cases, God is fitting us for some other trial or calling that he is wanting us to go on. But whatever it is, God is humbling us to the point that we would be fully reliant on him and his grace because he demands, I am a God, I am God, excuse me, and there is no other. Therefore, our answer is found by turning to him, the one who is only able to save us. And in this passage, I want us to see four observations of God being sovereign in his work of bringing us to salvation. The first that we observe here comes in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 2, that God is at work in our prayers. God is at work in our prayers. It begins by saying that he called out to the Lord in my distress and he answered me. I cried out from the deep inside Sheol, you heard my voice. It says here that Jonah called out to his Lord, his God. This is literally Yahweh or Jehovah, his Elohim. This is saying that Jonah has come to this point to say, I know, God, you are rightful place in my life of dependence. But he is calling out knowing that even though he feels as though he is deep inside what shield, a dark place or death, that even there God hears him. This is especially remarkable because up to this point, Jonah hadn't prayed at all. Go back to chapter 1. When, when God called Jonah to go to Nineveh, did Jonah stop and pray about it? Uh-uh. When Jonah ran down to Joppa, did Jonah stop and, and have a time of prayer to see if this is where he should go? Nope. When he got on the boat and bought the ticket, did he pray, say, God, is, is this what you should want from me? No, he didn't. Even when he was in the boat and the storm was raging and the pagan captain of the boat was saying, please come pray to your God, whoever it is, Jonah never prayed. 
And this is not coincidental that for this path of prayerlessness that was charted by Jonah's descent into rebellion and ruin. Remember, Jonah was escaping the presence of the Lord. And the further he was going in disobedience and rebellion, there was no way that he was going to pray because prayer brings us to the presence of God. And he knew that if he were to go to God, he would come to this this moment of saying, God, I know you're telling me this, but I'm going to do this. Disobedience leads to prayerlessness. Prayerlessness leads to folly and sin. And folly and sin leads to disaster. So what has changed now in Jonah's life? The answer is God, in his grace, has brought Jonah low. Has come to the point to strip everything away. As he's sinking down in the water and he's swallowed up by a fish, he understands that all of this is orchestrated by God. And that in it, Jonah is overwhelmed by his salvation and turns in repentance and obedience and dependence on God. And this is where our prayer life changes us. God uses our prayer life to change us. When we come into his presence, God uses our prayers to change us and who we are. J.I. Packer in his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, observed this. The prayer of a Christian is not an attempt to force God's hand, but a humble acknowledgement of helpless dependence. What we do every time we pray is to confess our own impotence and God's sovereignty. First, you give God thanks for your conversion because you know in your heart that God was entirely responsible for it. And secondly, you pray for the conversion of others. When you pray for unconverted people, you do so on the assumption that it is God's power to bring them to faith. You see, When we come to pray, God understands and moves in our hearts that we might pray in dependence on him, but he moves us to the heart that he has to see the loss and the lostness around us that we might pray for them. And Jonah was not praying for himself, and he certainly wasn't praying for the Ninevites to come to repentance. Let me encourage you, brother and sister, in your prayer time, if you are not praying This is probably a symptom of something deeper. Let me just even kind of flesh it just a little bit more to kind of the current call that we have for for our going to the gospel to every home. Over the last several weeks, we've been calling, encouraging to say, let's pray for 40 days of prayer. If you haven't been praying for the 40 days of prayer for the lostness in our community, then more than likely, more than likely, it's not true of everyone, that you're probably not very excited about going on a team to evangelize. And more than likely, if you're not praying for lost people, you're probably not sharing your faith much at all anyways. Your lack of prayerfulness is a symptom of a bigger problem. And just like Jonah God may bring you to a point where you understand you need to repent and depend on him. Prayer is where God does work on us, but he does so by number two, God moves to change our heart. 
What is God doing in the prayer? What is God doing in moving in us? He's changing our heart. That was the difference. Jonah in the boat, his heart wasn't there. His heart wasn't for obedience. His heart wasn't for Nineveh. He was, he knew, even when it came to the storm, he knew he was the cause of the storm, but his heart wasn't there to depend on God. But what do we read in verse 17? That the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. This fish was supernaturally prepared. It was a spiritual uber to the lift Jonah to the obedience and dependence of God. In the misconception, the fish was sent to punish Jonah, but if you read the text, the fish was actually for Jonah's salvation. Jonah saw a storm and his subsequent tossing over to the sea as discipline from God to change him and to change his heart to that he wouldn't be ultimately running from God, but he would be accepting of God's grace on him. Jonah saw himself as he started to sink in the water. This image into death is an image that he saw as a consequence for his sin. And in so doing, God brought Jonah to repentance to deal with Jonah that he dropped the scales from his eyes to help him see how sinful he really was. But then God ordained for a fish to swallow him up. But notice as Jonah prayed, who did he observe the change of his heart to be? Was it in his work? Was it in his power? No, just in these three verses, from verse 3 to verse 5, there was five times that G- Jonah used the pronoun you or a variation. It was clear that Jonah knew that it was God doing the work, not him. He said, when you threw me into the depths, when all your breakers and your billows swept over me, I have been banished from your sight, yet now look towards your holy temple. You see, God sent a miraculous storm in which these experienced sailors had never seen, but it's, it was large enough and powerful enough to, to, to come and to hit Jonah and understand that this was a consequence of his sin. Yet, in the same work, God ordained or appointed a fish. Think about this. Many people in this world would call it luck. Many would call it happenstance, but we call it providential of the sovereign God of the universe. That a large enough fish swimming in the vast sea came at the exact time, at the exact moment to swallow something that he had also maybe a a hungry enough attitude to swallow Jonah. In so doing, God worked what only God could do in chaining, changing someone's heart. Brothers and sisters, the Bible tells us that we are dead in our sins, that we cannot see anything apart from the work of God. Charles Spurgeon says, so is with a sinner. If God had provided every means of escape and only required him to get out of his dungeon, he would have remained there to all eternity. Why? Is not the sinner by nature dead to sin? And if God does require of the sinner dead in sin that he should take the first step, then he requireth just what which he renders salvation as impossible under the gospel 
as if it was ever under the law. Seeing man is unable to believe as he is obey, and is just as much without power to come to Christ as he is without power to go to heaven without Christ. The power must be given to him of the Spirit. So the Spirit of God comes into our lives to show us our wickedness, to show us our sin, but to reveal to us the grace of God in which we could never see before. Jonah, as he was sinking, listened to see how he was banished from his sight, that he knew that your breakers and billows were sweeping over me. He understood the judgment that was upon him, and yet he was brought to grief and repentance for what was going on. And this is what the Spirit does. In 2 Corinthians 7.10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. Jonah admits his sin and the work of God's sovereign justice in his life. And then he adds, yet I should look upon your holy temple. See, God was calling him to stop looking at himself and to look at him. You see, if you are far away from God today, friend, you are starting to see that your sin is against God and doesn't align with the Bible, here's good news. That is God's spirit at work in you today. If you're starting to see how your life is is far away from God and you're starting to see the truths of God break in, friend, that is the spirit of God at work in you. You didn't observe that yourself. Praise God that he's working in you. If you've never trusted him, now look to him. He's calling to you. The spirit is at work. And now let me say, you brother and sister in Christ, does God need to send a storm to you and a fish to swallow you that you would agree to the word of God? Does it have to get to a point where you are so stubborn in your life and in your ideas that you would have to be brought so low? Has there ever been a time that you have come to God's word and you've seen your life or your ideas or your philosophy go against God's word? How do you respond? Do you respond pridefully? Well, uh, certain such and such uh, that I have read, uh, you know, this goes against what I've read here in God's word. That you've taken the teaching of the culture and said that I am above what God says. That you've said, oh no, that, that's just an old book. That used to be that way, but it doesn't mean that way anymore. Well, brothers and sisters, that is the most prideful and haughty thing that anyone can say in rejection of God and his authority in your life. When we come to the Bible, when God calls us, we should say, we want to align with you, God. We want to agree with you. So let me encourage you today Maybe a day of repentance for you, that you would be humbled of heart, that you would trust in the Spirit working in you 
knowing that you must agree with God. But here's the good thing. As God moved and changed Jonah's heart, the good news is what he showed Jonah, even in the belly of a fish. Number three, that God brings us to deliverance. In verse 6 and 7, he said, I sank to the foundations of the mountains, and the earth gates were shining behind me, but you raised me from the pit, O Lord. Now, this, this whale was no Sunday drive. This ticket, this trip in the whale was no Sunday drive. Jonah would have faced 108 to 109 degree temperatures for three straight days. He would have been filled with gastric juices that would have caused him to vomit over and over and over again. The, the, those juices would have been irritating to his eyes, his body, and his skin. And yet, in God's goodness... We don't see any of this happen to Jonah or lasting results that could happen. But it is in his words in verse 6, you raised my life from the pit, O Lord. Jonah was still in the belly of a fish. How could he say these words? How could he say this? Because it wasn't his deliverance from the sea. It wasn't his deliverance from the fish. It was the fact that he knew that he was in disobedience to God. But now by God's grace, he had restored him. And his trust was in God alone. That no matter what happened in the sea, no matter what happened in the belly of the fish, Jonah knew that there was mercy of God. Here with the holy temple was mentioned twice in these verses. Some would say that Jonah was speaking to the temple and saying that that is where God's presence was, and that is very true. But what happened to the temple? That at the mercy seat of God, yearly there was blood of a lamb spilt on the mercy seat for the forgiveness of the Jews' sins, even Jonah's sins. And Jonah knew by understanding the mercy of God that in doing so, he knew that God would find him safe. This prayer is littered with psalms that Jonah would have had memorized throughout his entire life. He can't help but think of Psalm 42. He brought me up from the desolate pit out of the muddy clay and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. Brothers and sisters, no matter where you are, in your desolate pit, no matter where you are, far from God, no matter where you are, in your disobedience and in your rebellion, there's a place that we can look. There's a mercy seat, but not in God's temple, but on the cross of Jesus Christ. That as we look at what Jesus did, took on the, the perfect substitute, took on the payment for your sins by dying a horrible death, by him dying for you, that you trust in him and him alone, that he was put in the grave for three days later and he came alive to show himself to over 500 people that the Bible says and Jesus himself says that those who trust in me and me alone, if you repent and believe, you will never die because I have paid for you. And when we do, no matter how far we are in our rebellion, no matter how we are 
far away from God and feel like the world is about to close up over us. Jesus lifts us up and sits us on the rock, sits us on himself. I can't help but read this. Maybe you are doing this too as you're reading it. I can't help but think of the the hymn that we would sing from time to time. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the distant shore. But the master, seeking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. From the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me. Love lifted me when nothing else could help. Love lifted me. My Christian brother or sister, as you read about Jonah, consider the great deliverance God has worked in your life. Perhaps God saved you in the last few years, or maybe God has worked on you for a long time, many decades Maybe he delivered you from difficult trials, sinful addictions, and degrading passions. Your experience was much like this. Sinking in a dark, stormy night, only to be found in a cloudless, sunshine morning in the arms of Jesus. Perhaps you came to Christ as a child. Either way, all of us as Christians share in Christ's deliverance from from the judgment of our sins and a punishment far worse than being found in the belly of a fish. So praise God for the way that he saved you. And when you sing songs and spiritual songs and hymns about the great salvation that God has wrought in your life, sing with your whole heart because this is the work of God in you. Realize that you were heading in the wrong direction, just like Jonah. Realize that you were helpless as a man in raging waters, yet God saved you. And give praise to God for this, because there is no greater news that you can hear. And as a result, just like in Jonah's life, number four, God moves to destroy our idols. Verse 8, those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithless love, faithful love. This is a key verse. There's 24 verses before and 23 after it. It's right in the middle of the chapter. This doesn't necessarily mean it's, a, it's overly important, but it must be pretty important. And here there was two concepts that are, that are introduced, idolatry and grace. It is in that final work of what God does in our salvation, opening our eyes to our sin, bringing us deliverance through Christ, and killing, helping us kill the idols in our life. Idolatry, we might think of the idols of the pagan sailors or the the Ninevites. They had their little idols out praying for deliverance. But there's also this word grace. It's the Hebrew word hesed. It's a special love for God's children, but it's this wonderful word of covenant love of grace. You know, something remarkable has happened. Jonah has applied the sin of idolatry to anyone and everyone who cherishes worthless idols. And he even put himself in there. 
The idolatry is the source of his own sin. He thought it would be better for him, his nation, his own idea to reject God's call. How dare God want to bring those Ninevites to repentance? But Jonah, he valued what he loved, his life, his identity, his racial hatred, more than he valued God. But true repentance brings us to reject the idols of our heart. You know, the word in Hebrew for worship or related is glory. There's a word kabod, or, which means weight. What do we glory? What do we put our weight on? What do we give more weight than God? Well, Tim Keller helps us. His definition, an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give, anything that is so central and essential to your life that you should lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. So brothers and sisters, God is going to remove the idols of your heart, even things that could be good things. But they have become God things, things that you can't live with, things that you feel like you can't live with, things that you pray that you won't lose, things that you would be bitter if you lost, things that you take refuge in, things that those things that might, that, that help you feel better about your life. Where do you turn when things get tough? Friends, family, a bottle, going shopping, food, a boyfriend or girlfriend, these things usually in themselves are not bad things, but they're bad things when they become ultimate things or good things that have become God things. As God saves you, he takes you away from them. There's this great scene in the book of Acts when Paul came, comes and preaches the gospel at Ephesus and, and those who have been practicing sorcery bring their sorcery books and and come out to the middle of the town and burn them saying that I can't find trust in these things anymore. I can only trust in God. What is he calling you to repent of? What are some things that God is, is saying and revealing to you that has become idols in your life? Some of you, what if I were to say to you this morning, uh, you know what, it would be best if you were to give up your conservative media or your liberal media. Don't turn that channel on anymore. Don't go to such and such website anymore. What if I were to say that? Well, if you're squirming and you've already thought of 15 reasons why you shouldn't, that might be an idol. Is there something of comfort that you won't give up for Christ? Are you too scared to share the gospel because you're afraid of what someone might think of you? Brothers and sisters, what people think of you, your fame, is an idol. It's what God thinks of us that matters. When as God moves in our life, he takes the idols and crushes it. Brothers and sisters, when I read chapter 2, I can't help but worship. Because here, Jonah's heart is changed by God. And he concludes... Salvation belongs to the Lord. 
God's salvation does not come in response to a changed life. But a changed life is a response to salvation that is offered as a free gift. We get to receive a gift by accepting a faith of what Christ has done. And in this comes a life that is changed. As I read this, and I'm thankful for this, I again think of the challenge that we have to go to the gospel of every home. You see, as we think about this, many of us get fearful because we believe that it's us that's doing the work. That it's us that's going to be rejected. Many times we're going to be fearful to do it because we think that we're going to mess up the presentation somehow. And we're going to somehow, that person's not going to be able to be saved. Or somebody's going to slam the door in our faith or reject us because of the gospel. Well, maybe I shouldn't say this. And Mark might get mad at me for saying this because I don't want to say, keep anybody from coming to training tonight. But that's probably going to happen. That's That is going to happen. But here's the most beautiful thing. It doesn't matter. Because it's God who does the saving, not us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And we need to understand that God has only ever called us to obey by sharing the gospel. Nowhere has God given us the ability to save someone. We must be faithful. In God's sovereignty, he has chosen Christ to pay for our sins in his same plan and provision. The gospel is only multiplied by God's people proclaiming it. So maybe we must leave here today Singing the praises of salvation belongs to the Lord. And then also determined to share this wonderful good news of what God has done in our life. So that God, in his wonderful grace, may continue and will continue saving others by his grace. Brothers and sisters, in this we see... Salvation belongs to the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the, what you have taught us in your word, how Jonah has repented, yet you are calling us all to repent. But thank you, Lord, that it's not dependent upon me, but your spirit convicts, calls, saves, and encourages us as we put our faith in you. God, I pray this morning that we, by your grace, are faithful and that you encourage us and embolden us and challenge us to rid ourselves of idols in our lives. That you continue the work that you began in us. And God, as we leave this place, that we would share this wonderful grace and that you would be at work in hearts around us. In Jesus' name, amen.